0: Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm excited to interview Kelly Speaks Bachman. She's the first CEO of the Energy Storage Association, ESA, which is the acronym, is a national trade association dedicated to energy storage. Kelly has spent over 20 years working in energy and environmental issues in the public, NGO, and private sectors, including United Technologies, Sun Edison, and Alliance to Save Energy. She's the former commissioner of the Maryland Public Service Commission, and there are a lot of interesting points and topics that she discusses in the podcast. Some of them are the benefits of energy storage, how the price is decreasing exponentially, and also how it's a game changer for intermittent power sources. I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I would like to thank Silverline Communications for sponsoring this episode. Silverline Communications, an integrated marketing and PR agency focused on clean and emerging tech, is headquartered in Washington, D.C. with satellite offices in Chicago and Salt Lake City. You'll learn more about Silverline during the podcast. Thank you again to Silverline Communications for sponsoring this episode of the podcast.
1: probably in the last five years or so, the cost of lithium-ion batteries have dropped about 80%. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And then if you take that to the behind the meter, the commercial and industrial applications, installed costs for lithium-ion batteries have dropped about that much in the past three years.
0: Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangin, so let's get into it. Kelly, I'm excited to speak to you about energy storage and get your expert insight and perspectives. I know we talked about this before on the podcast. We speak a lot about storage, especially coupled with storage and renewable energy and how this will completely change the energy industry. So I'm really excited to get your insight and expert perspective. Thank you, Kelly, for being on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Yeah, definitely. And In the beginning, we talked a little bit about the Energy Storage Association, but I think it would be helpful if you could talk to more detail about the Energy Storage Association and what you do.
1: Sure. Well, ESA is the National Trade Association for Energy Storage in all its forms, including, of course, batteries that you hear about all the time that are coupled with solar, but also thermal storage, pumped hydro storage, mechanical storage. So, Everything storage in all its form is the basic tenet of it is we look at anything that disconnects the element of time from when you generate and you use energy. Our mission here is to accelerate the widespread use of competitive and reliable energy storage systems in North America. We're working towards a more resilient, sustainable, affordable an efficient electric grid. I think that's an important part of what we do. Is always keeping those four elements in mind and balancing them. We've got about 190 members, a diverse group of companies. We've got some small startups all the way to Fortune 50 companies. They cross the gamut in terms of the value chain. So I think that's an important aspect as well. We have implementers, so IPPs, ESCOs, developers. We have grid operators, including, for example, Cal ISO is one of our members, but also utilities, municipal co-op and IOUs. We have manufacturers, and then we have all those services like the financial side and insurance and consultants, all involved in deploying these energy storage systems around the globe.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. And there's some great points that you mentioned when you talked about what ESA does. It's interesting, you talked about the reliability of the grid. Can you talk about really how storage helps with the reliability of the grid, especially when we look at our transmission and distribution networks in the U.S., how they're aging, and we really haven't upgraded them in a while, and how storage could actually be the solution towards that. I mean, that's interesting that you brought that up.
1: There's a lot that energy storage can do in terms of reliability, but also in resilience. And when I differentiate the two between the two, I mean the way the grid operates under normal conditions and also the way the grid operates or gets disrupted in abnormal conditions due to external forces, right? So, storms, cyber attacks things like that, that can disrupt normal operations, energy storage, because it stores the energy that was generated at a different time, can inject that electricity back into the grid as long as the distribution line is up, or in the case of behind the meter at someone's home or someone's business, it can roll through those outages for you. It's got a number of values that it provides to the grid, which is why it's so exciting to have something like this it's an enabling technology for solar for wind for even natural gas for the inflexibility of coal generation but it's also at the same time really disruptive to the regulatory frameworks that we have across the united states because it doesn't act only as generation asset it doesn't actually act only as a distribution asset or a transmission asset it can be all three in a single Item and that's what's kind of disrupting everything and making it so exciting.
0: Definitely, and that's huge the disruption aspect of it, and also, too, like how do utilities value the many different components of an energy storage system? I think a lot of utilities are still trying to determine what that value is, and there's multiple as you mentioned, like battery backup, frequency regulation, there's so many different ways that you could use the battery that it helps the grid. So that's a really interesting and great point that you mentioned. The other thing too, that I never heard someone say it until I heard previous podcasts that I listened to, and you mentioned just now, is timing of the generation. Yeah. We don't really think about it, but really at this point, basically the electricity is generated and used at that time. But really like storage changes that paradigm To where you could use it at any time and when it's most beneficial, which is some a concept that I really would love to hear more of your perspective on it.
1: Yeah, so I think that's the actually like the coolest thing about storage is no matter what form it's in, no matter what the duration of that storage asset is, the important thing about it is you know never before in the history of the electricity industry. Have we been able to decouple that element of time, right? So you generate it and you have to use it immediately. And that impacts the way that you have to keep the frequency regulated. It impacts all of those elements of ancillary services as well as making sure that you've built enough generation so that if you lose one resource, you have to build another. You have to have that backup. You have to have that reserve, right? So energy storage allows you to sort of pull off let's say there's oversupply in Montana from a wind farm, you can pull that off and not waste the energy. So you're increasing the efficiency or the capacity factor of the wind farm and you're able to inject that at a later time into the grid when the wind's not blowing. Same with solar, right? So when the sun's not shining, you can use the stored up electricity from the grid or from the asset itself to a later time. And what that does is it allows you to operate a lot more efficiently, both in the sort of micro interruptions that might happen as well as just when the generation source is available.
0: Yeah, that would be great if Kelly, if you could talk about too, like how energy storage, it's able to dispatch electricity into the grid versus conventional peaker plants, your normal sort of like peaker, which is usually like natural gas run versus like energy storage. That'd be great. to yeah, get. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Now I'll tell you just first of all, to start off that Energy storage is not necessarily looking to displace any sort of resource. We think of ourselves as an enabling technology, not a disruptive one in terms of different energy resources. But that said, I mean, if you think about gas peakers or even diesel backup generators that are especially in areas of high congestion, in areas of high population, energy storage is a great resource that's non-combustive, that doesn't add to the pollution factor in congested areas because what it does is it can take off the excess generation of existing resources, right? So you've got your base load or you've got any sort of centralized generation that can run at a more regular capacity level. And as demand increases and decreases, storage can take off that excess. And then inject it back into the grid when you've got your generation resources down. And that can take the place, and it's we've seen in a number of different bids that have come out in recent years, it can take the place on an economic basis of being more affordable than a gas peaker, even because it's got again very different uses. It's not just for peaking. It can also provide the ancillary services that are required by the grid.
0: Definitely. That is really helpful to know. And that's a key point too, that storage is an enabler to basically all the other energy technologies. And that is huge. And I think it's going to be a sort of combined solution, improving the reliability of the grid with having storage as an enabler. And it's amazing to hear when you're talking about ESA and how many different technologies that storage basically partners with.
1: Yeah. Even if you think about vehicle to grid opportunities that are just beginning to arise and you think of electric vehicles and their charging patterns, energy storage can be an enabler to making sure that that impact is as efficient as possible as well.
0: Great. That's really helpful to know. It would be great to understand too, Kelly, like your background and how you got interested in energy storage. I mean, it's amazing the diversity of experience that you have within the energy industry and you worked in a lot of different aspects and in entrepreneurial endeavors and obviously ESA as well. You're the first CEO of ESA. Can you talk about how your education and career path led you to where you are now?
1: Oh, my gosh. I was trained as a mechanical engineer, um, although I don't even think I've practiced that since the early 90s. But my path has always been around the idea of creating an electric grid that is more efficient, that's got more control by the consumer's. That, of course, is more environmentally friendly than the coal plants that you think about in the grid of what I hope is the past. And so just kind of taking on these issues as, you know, one of the things about training as a mechanical engineer is the most valuable aspect of my education was really figuring out how to approach a problem in a systematic way, to break it down into manageable questions, to isolate the variables and to solve for whatever is X. Right, so my ex in my career and in my life has been how do we decarbonize the electricity we use every day? And so that took me through a number of iterations of both function and in the market. Right, so I've been involved in solar, I've been involved in wind, in landfill gas projects, water treatment projects like all kinds of stuff that's been a lot of fun. I've been involved in the engineering of such projects like life cycle cost analysis. I've been involved in the development through Sun Edison. I was involved in the financing aspect of it, you know, how to bring financing to solar. And then it occurred to me on this path like policy is such an important building block on which companies can move forward and develop these projects. And so I began to get into the policy aspect of it. And that's kind of how it landed me here, having the background of all of these different resources and seeing. The finance issue kind of coming together looking at how I'll just give you an example back in at Sun Edison we knew the big problems were that solar was too small it was too expensive and it wasn't firm and so through that like maybe 10 12 years ago there was you know solar took on those aspects right so the expense was resolved through finance, the size just began to resolve itself as the costs came down for solar. And now we're looking at what about the firm? What about the intermittency of solar? And I saw that storage, can resolve some of these issues. And if you, if you look at the trajectory of the solar market in the United States and now what's happening in energy storage market, they're very similar. Costs are coming down, deployments are going up and energy storage can help not just solar but all of the different resources to operate more efficiently, more firmly in a dispatchable mode. And so, yeah, so they kind of, it feels like I'm supposed to be here at this time with my background.
0: Well, it seems like you're in the forefront, in the beginning of something that's going to be for a very long time and permanently with energy storage. And obviously it's interesting. I know you mentioned about how Sun Edison, as well on on another podcast working on a PPA, one of the first peat power purchase agreements in solar. And it was interesting as well. Did you get interested in policy from working at the Maryland Public Service Commission?
1: Yeah. So even with Working with Sun Edison, policy was standing in the way. And we saw how policy could actually enable a market. So for example, with the renewable portfolio standard in the state of Maryland, there was that enabled a long-term signal for policy to encourage an investment, right? And so now we have pretty strong RPSs, like 50% or more in states nice. that cover more than half the population of the United States. It's really awesome. So I saw from a private industry perspective, how it could influence and make a difference. And then at the same time, it happened to be around 2009, 2010, when the ARRA dollars were coming through from a recovery act, the ARRA,
0: I can't remember. Recovery Re- Re- Reinvestment Act.
1: Reinvestment. Yeah. So that money was coming into Maryland and I went into their energy office and said, hey, I can help you figure out because I have all of these different types of renewable backgrounds, I can help you figure out how to get to 20% renewable by 2022. And a good friend, Malcolm Wolf, who now runs the National Hydro Association said, no, 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 I think you should come and work for us full time, not not just consult. So I did that. And that started my sort of love affair with working in the policy arena.
0: Sure. That's amazing to hear. And that's amazing the impact that you've had within the industry being an innovator and early in the whole Technology, same thing with storage. I feel like it's still very early in the process. I mean, I feel like exactly. think it's been around for a while, which it has. But to see like the cost declines, as sure. you mentioned, specifically in lithium ion technology, it's pretty yeah. amazing. And it's, as you said, what, what we saw with solar panels and solar panel technologies happening with storage, which is amazing. Can you talk about like what trends you're seeing in energy storage? I know you talked about obviously like the price is going substantially down. And I know there's a lot of other, you talked about coupling of different technologies. I'm sure there are a lot of other trends that are going on within the energy Absolutely.
1: Storage. So I would say there's a couple of really macro trends that are happening. Costs are coming down. Duration of batteries are coming up. Policymakers are starting to pay attention Policymakers and utilities, I would say, are starting to pay attention. And all of that's coming together in deployments that are just, we're we're at the beginning stages of a hockey puck of deployment levels. So just to give you a couple of data points here, probably in the last five years or so, the cost of lithium ion batteries have dropped about 80%. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And then if you take that to the behind the meter, the commercial and industrial applications, installed costs for lithium ion batteries have dropped about that much in the past three years. I mean, it's pretty astounding. (laughs) Yeah. When you think about expected costs to drop, because especially in the soft cost areas of installation, as we're learning more and more with these increased deployments, we're expecting costs to continue to drop through the next five years or so for eight to 10% every single year. So, With that sort of macro look at what's going on with costs, certainly it's becoming economic just even without incentives that are placed or without sort of just on the baseline economics, it's really starting to take hold. As these costs are declining, more research is being undertaken for longer durations. So in 2012, for example, we saw grid battery systems that were at about 15 minutes duration. And today, the average of what's on the grid is about two and a half hours. And now I don't see a lot of batteries that are going in that are less than four hours, right? So four hours is the norm. And we're seeing proposals for six to eight hour batteries. Between that and the work that we're trying to do on the economics, or I should say the industry is trying to do on the economics of thermal and mechanical and other battery technologies, aside from lithium ion, we're seeing a lot of increased opportunities. So already storage has a number of applications it can play, that only broadens when you think about long-term, daily, weekly, even seasonal storage capacity being able to be applied to the grid.
0: Definitely. That's really helpful. And it's really great how you were talking about the different technologies and the sort of the cost declines and the the technology aspect, really the amount of time that the battery is able to, to last, which is pretty amazing to see and hear about. Yeah. Can you talk about like the federal incentives for energy storage as well? I know you talked about how people are taking notice and maybe not everyone's familiar with the federal incentives related to it.
1: Yeah. So in terms of policy, the trends that we're seeing is really honestly that states are really leading the way. Actually, there are some federal incentives that are encouraging and we're doing a lot of work to include to get Congress to pass, we've seen a lot of success in the Department of Energy and actually the administration supporting energy storage. So at the federal level, I'll talk a little bit about the federal level to be more direct to your question. The Department of Energy just in January of this year launched an initiative called the Energy Storage Grand Challenge. And it's sort of like the sunshot for solar, right? It's pretty exciting in that they're looking at investments in technology, research development they're looking at tech transfer, they're looking at policy and valuation, they're looking at manufacturing and they're looking at workforce issues. So those are sort of the five buckets of investments that they're planning to make over the next several years. They're putting together a roadmap currently. They have a baseline that was announced, gosh, at the beginning of this month, and they're looking for input from industry to really shape and refine and finalize that roadmap. So that's pretty exciting. Also, Congress has taken a look at storage, and frankly, there have been some bills in that there were about twelve bills federally in the last from 2019. About 12 bills, not even including the standalone storage ITC, that have been really supportive of storage. Now, Senators Murkowski and Manchin tried to get those through in their big energy package that unfortunately failed due to some infighting. But That's Congress. So we're hopeful that that can continue to pass through. In addition, we've never had more support for the storage ITC than we've seen recently. And the way that we've structured our request for a storage standalone storage ITC will also serve to provide relief to our industry and um, continue to keep people employed in the energy storage industry as we suffer through the effects of COVID-19.
0: Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I would like to thank our sponsor for this episode, Silverline Communications. Silverline Communications, an integrated marketing and PR agency focused on clean and emerging tech is headquartered in DC with satellite offices in Chicago and Salt Lake City. What defines them? They're independent, agile, absolutely invested in their clients and their teams. They are storytellers and connectors at heart, grounding programs with insights to achieve real business objectives and shape outcomes that influence markets and policy. They use every tool in the communication arsenal to translate complex ideas into breakthrough campaigns that drive stakeholder action. The team that gets it done, Silverline Communications strategic smart professionals with unrivaled expertise in energy policy and emerging technologies. In short, they know their stuff. They believe in what they do, they believe in what their clients do, and when their clients succeed, the world is a better place. To learn more about Silverline, go to TeamSilverline.com. You can read Silverline at 703-286-5500 or info at TeamSilverline.com. I interviewed Laura Taylor who's the CEO and founder of Silverline Communications. On episode 59 of the Solar Maverick podcast, it's called Lessons Learned from a Clean Energy Entrepreneur, which was a great interview. Thank you again to Silverline Communications for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. It would be helpful if you could talk about for the proposed standalone IDC, would that be at 30% if they reduce 26% that solar currently is?
1: Yeah, so it would have started at the 30%. What we're asking for is not a change in the timeline. We're just asking to be listed as a standalone resource alongside solar, alongside the biogas, alongside fuel cells and combined heat and power resources. There are a number of resources that currently as standalone resources can take advantage of the ITC. Storage is at a disadvantage in that it can only be taken in when it's coupled physically with solar. And even so, when it's pulling only from that solar resource down to about 75%. So what we're asking for is not a change in the timeline. Although if the solar and other resources were to be extended, we're just asking for a level playing field because storage can apply not just to solar, but it can be a distribution grid asset as well. It can be a support for wind. Again, we were talking earlier about sort of pulling off the excess energy of wind when they oversupply in the middle of the night when nobody needs it. It can be used for that as well. So we're just asking For the same timeline that everybody else gets in the current ITC, we're looking for standalone storage to be eligible. And we're also looking for, because of this COVID-19, we're looking for immediate relief through what we're calling a direct pay, which is similar to what the solar industry is asking for. We've been well-coordinated with them on that.
0: So the direct pay is really similar to the 1603 Arrera grant. Basically, Treasury provides a cash grant instead of uh, having a taxable appetite and then basically it being a credit for your taxes, Is that correct?
1: It's very similar. The implementation of it is a little bit different at the risk of getting too wonky. (laughs) It is similar in that it just gets you a cash credit instead of having to take that tax liability during this time when there aren't a lot of companies that are going to be having this tax liability. Now, with the COVID-19 Crisis that's come on. We surveyed our industry, and 63% of respondents said that they're incurring project delays, immediate project delays. That was back in March. And 37% said those delays are six months or longer. So that slows up, it gums up the economy of our industry. And we want our folks to keep as many jobs as possible, especially on the implementers side, when they're just standing by the sidelines, not able to implement their projects. And so that's why we're asking for this direct pay.
0: Yeah, I think the direct pay is a huge thing if it gets passed for the energy storage and the solar industry, because you know a lot more development and construction is going to happen. And it's a lot simpler than Dealing with the tax equity or having someone who has reven- has a taxable appetite and structuring so that's hopefully that passes and that's really interesting to hear you mentioned how states have really taken a leadership position in storage can you talk about potentially like which states are ideal for energy storage and or which have great incentive programs
1: I'd love to talk to you about how we see that states are leading the way not just through incentives but by laying out targets. We've also seen a number of states that have put some really interesting incentive programs together as well. So for example, Maryland has their own standalone energy storage tax incentive that they put together that we were pretty excited about they put it together in 2017 and then improved upon it even in just this past year, in this past legislative session. The Massachusetts SMART program and its credit for energy storage is a pretty exciting opportunity as well. We've seen a number of states, you know, 33 states now have energy storage in their, deployed in their states, and 32 states have some level of either regulatory action or legislative action within their state policy to examine or to require that energy storage be considered um, in the long-term planning or have a program to help support their targets, et cetera. So they're really leading the way in the storage deployments that are going on.
0: Yeah, that's great to hear. And that's great to hear what's happening on the state level and them having goals. I know ESA is obviously one of the focal points is promoting the energy storage industry. And I was excited that you have a goal for the industry with 35 gigawatts by 25. Can you talk about how you get there? I mean, you mentioned a little bit about the different components, but it would be great to get a better understanding of that and how you think we would be able to get to that goal.
1: It's a fun story because I think it was back in 2017. So this was before... FERC 841 came out. I know I'm going to get a little wonky here, but bear with me. So back in 2017, ESA partnered with Navigant Research to conduct a study on where do we think we can get by 2025 with energy storage. So we wanted sort of a long term vision, but not so long term that it wasn't sort of accountable and trackable and things. So The drivers behind this inquiry that we even started on included the fact that the U.S. is becoming increasingly electrified in not just the consumer products, but even in our vehicle systems, right? The cost of disruptions for commercial, industrial, and even at the residential level is certainly increasing as we become more dependent on that electrification. The third point was the electric system really requires flexible assets to meet these evolving consumer demands especially with more renewables coming online, energy storage offers a lot of different values and flexibility really more in the system, sort of like a a little bit of a buffer. And then the last point is that we strongly believe, as you wouldn't be surprised, that all assets that should be compensated for the values that they provide to the grid. And that if you provide capacity as well as ancillary services, you should be compensated for both of those in the market. So Given this premise, and along with what we saw as the RPS is moving across the states and getting higher and higher, the projections of what we saw in the cost of storage and the assumptions that we saw were necessary policy in order to that needed to be implemented, we worked with Navigant and we found that we could get to about 35 gigawatts of storage by 2025. Now, it requires some pretty critical changes to policies from back when we were looking at this in 2017, because if you think about back in 2017, there weren't a lot of utilities that were considering storage in their long-term planning. There weren't a lot of targets. You know, maybe you'd see California and Hawaii starting to look at it, but that was about it. There was no way at all really to compensate storage for multiple services, right? So when you register an asset in the wholesale market, for example, you have to say whether it's generation or whether it's transmission, when you're looking at the distribution level, you have to discern whether it's a distribution asset or a generation asset. That's first and foremost. And so it was cut off for energy storage, which is a different kind of asset. So there were a number of things that needed to happen to get to this 35 gigawatts. And since 2017, this is the fun part, is like there's been a lot of what we said needed to happen beginning to happen. So in February of 2018, FERC 841 came out and they said, ISOs and RTOs, you must find a way for storage to be compensated for multiple values, right? So if they're providing ancillary services and reliability assurance, then they have to be compensated for both of those values. We started that. That was pretty exciting in the regulation world, the multiple values of storage. In terms of legislation, we've seen since 2017 when we issued this report that seven states have set up their targets. Six states have incentive programs, so that's beginning to take hold. In terms of updated planning, 33 states now have planning requirements that must include at least the consideration of storage, and six states have policies that require irp planning to include storage. So there's just a lot of activities that have happened since we started out with this vision and we think it's very attainable given what's happened over the last few years.
0: Yeah, definitely that's amazing like you We're talking about these steps in 2017, and they have been happening. And it's amazing, too, how quickly utility state governments are coming with goals, even like projections, I'm sure, of cost declines and probably efficiencies of the or capacities of batteries have been increasing probably a lot faster, as you mentioned, than maybe previously thought, which is exciting to see. Can you speak about President Trump recently had an executive order on banning bulk power systems? Does that impact the storage industry? You know, I'm still trying to understand about how that works. And it would be great to get your perspective.
1: Oh, Lord. (laughs) Yeah.
0: You don't have to answer it if you don't want.
1: (laughs) No, that's okay. So it's interesting. I can speak to it, but I think I don't have a lot of answers for it. And I'll tell you, the thing that concerns me most about that executive order is that there is so much that is unclear, right? The executive quarter came out, what, May 1st? And we're now at May 15th. We've certainly heard their briefings. We've been on a couple of briefings. We've had this morning an additional call with some folks within Department of Energy. And we have a great relationship with the Department of Energy. As I told you earlier, the Energy Storage Grand Challenge is really awesome. We're working with them on a daily basis to try to figure out what those roadmaps can be. And so when you take that in the context of this executive order, there's a lack of clarity around that order. And more than anything else, we're trying to figure out a better understanding of what the order's scope and intent is and what the process is and the timing is. So for example, it talks about a national emergency with respect to the threat to the United States bulk power system. So that tells me really, it's the transmission system. So I think at the distribution level, we have less to worry about with this executive order. I was saying earlier how I think in terms of breaking down problems. So I'm breaking this down in terms of, okay, we don't have to worry about the distribution. Let's set that aside. So now within the transmission level, like what are the problems that we have to address? What are the countries that they mean by foreign adversaries so where do we have to pay attention to the electric equipment? So something that we have learned is that they're really focused seriously on national security and where the highest impact could be. And I understand and completely support that. But there are some ambiguities within the order. So, for example, it says if, if the equipment is not directly in this list, then it's not included. But then later in the order, it says anything that's connected to the transmission system. So That's not necessarily everything that they've listed. So we're trying to get some clarity around, at the very least, what the priorities are. I think I've been encouraged by their openness to have conversations with us and to clarify some of these issues. And I think in the next weeks or so, we'll have a better understanding. Sorry, that was a really long-winded response.
0: That's great. I mean, that's the best answer that I've heard. I mean, really, you're providing the context of everything and really the guidance of what it is, because I feel like it still seems like it's to be determined. that's great to hear that the DOE are willing to hear feedback and work with you. But I think it's an important initiative, but it was just very nebulous, which is, you know, it's kind of great that you confirmed what I thought. It's a great perspective that you brought. So I appreciate you explaining. Yeah. I know you've won many awards. And can you talk about that? You were, I guess, we won the CLEANY last year for Women of the Year, and you were nominated as the C3E Ambassador In April, and the luminary speaker at Distribute Tech International, which was pretty recent as well. That's all amazing things that you've been highlighted for all your hard work. I don't know if you want to talk about the ad or... <laughs> I don't
1: know. I mean, I guess, don't get me wrong. It is totally awesome. And of course, I emailed my mom like immediately at Tower, yeah. like, Mom, I'm Woman of the Year. It's totally awesome. It feels really, really great. It's like icing on the cake, right? To be able to stand with, as a C3 ambassador among such like inspiring professionals, you know, alongside Julia Hamm and Abby Hopper and other just major women in this industry that have not only made a difference in our industry as a whole, but really taken some time to promote diversity and inclusion within our industry, because I think that's a really important aspect of what we do, right? As women who have some level of influence over the industry as a whole, it's important to make sure that we keep bringing diverse ideas and diverse perspectives into our thinking about how this grid needs to evolve. Otherwise we'll just keep doing it the same old way. I'm totally honored, but there's other parts that I'm just more excited, like highlights, if I think of highlights, not that those aren't huge highlights, but like being on the right side of history is kind of awesome.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Like
1: when it it comes down to environment and clean energy, as a former regulator of Maryland, that was just such an awesome experience to be able to improve reliability for Maryland consumers and at the same time work on initiatives such as the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, um, where we actively set markets to work to reduce the carbon intensity of the power that we consume. That was so awesome. Working with a startup like Sun Edison to like resolve issues of finance around solar, and again, like working towards that end goal, just, I mean, those are the real highlights of actually doing and making a difference.
0: Yeah, it's all about your involvement, not necessarily the awards, but you're right. I mean, it's huge what you've accomplished and congratulations and it's just beginning, right? What oh, you, thank you, yes. With. So, Oh,
1: just wait till storage takes hold.
0: Oh, I know, I'm excited and I'm excited to see the future for you, Kelly. And I appreciate your time on the podcast. It was an amazing interview. If people wanted to learn more about like the Energy Storage Association, what's the best way that they could learn or even as well learn about you, Kelly?
1: Give me a call. (laughs) First, start off at our website. It's energystorage.org. And there's just a wealth of information under the resources page about the different technologies that are available, about different policies that have been put in place, about what you can do to get involved to help move those policies along as a citizen or as participant in the solar or the clean energy market as a whole. So that's a great resource. And yeah, I'm available to just about anybody, everybody that calls in. So, you know, just call our office. My email's on that website. You can always reach me.
0: Yeah, definitely. We'll, in the notes of the podcast, leave the Energy Storage Association website, the main number, and then also your email as well. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick podcast. The Solar Maverick podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U The Solar Maverick podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown.